Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by my course, Rest Assured. If you've been struggling with falling asleep, or staying asleep, or just not waking up feeling well-rested, you've come to the right place. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI, is the gold standard intervention in the management of insomnia. Rest Assured is a digital course that walks you through CBTI, step-by-step, with everything you need to succeed. Each of the six weekly modules guides you through some important background information for the different techniques, explores the evidence-based techniques in detail, provides multiple examples of exercises so you can find the one that works for you, and reviews the work you've completed since the last module. And rest assured, it's just not another DIY left to your own devices, but rather, you get direct access to me, a board-certified sleep physician in twice-monthly office hours, where you can ask me face-to-face any questions you may have about the course material. So check out www.wellrestedmd.com slash RA to learn more. That's wellrestedmd.com slash RA. Or just head to the homepage and click on courses to learn more. Enjoy the episode. Hey there, friends and neighbors. You're listening to the Well Rested Podcast, episode number 57, Great Expectations. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Lennon. Can it truly be that our expectations alone about our sleep can impact whether or not we get that good snooze? In this week's episode, I'll discuss some of the most common dysfunctional beliefs about sleep. Back in episode 47, I discussed several of the most common cognitive distortions. These mind warps are not specific to sleep, but can affect the way we view and interpret anything. To review, the most common cognitive distortions are catastrophizing, magnifying or minimizing, all or nothing thinking, personalization, mind reading, fortune telling, overgeneralizing, and labeling. Many of these distortions are at the core of the default mode network, the ego writ large, and the source of mind-wandering. These distortions in thinking, and they are distortions, reflect the common human experience that I am the center of the universe. Anything that does not have an obvious immediate direct benefit to me must be terrible, and that the behavior and actions of all other people is really just in response to me, and that I am all-knowing including knowing all about other people's intentions and what's going to happen in the future. A bit narcissistic for sure, but make no mistake, we all have these tendencies, even if not all of us put them on full display. These distortions of thinking, making judgments about our experience, and often tilting heavily for the negative, these judgments can drive us to act in ways that are not always in our best interest. Recall from episode 42 our discussions of CBT, or Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. CBT and its offshoots in an alphabet soup is the most effective tool in the management of mental health, with the highest level evidence supporting its use. And modern CBT and third-wave CBT sub-brands are based on ancient wisdom and the contemplative practices, especially in the ancient Greco-Roman philosophy of Stoicism. That's capital S Stoicism, to be distinguished from small s stoicism of the stiff upper lip never have emotions stereotype. And recall from episode 42 that the Stoics viewed human behavior as resulting from a few key processes. We have an initial impression, such as a spontaneous thought, emotion, or sensation. We then make a judgment about that impression, or as the Stoics put it, give assent to that impression by glorifying it as true. And then we act based on that judgment. Modern neuroscience and psychology has shown us, however, that often our judgments can be mistaken. That in response to an impression, these spontaneous thoughts, feelings, and sensations, it is all too easy to make bad judgments. And the greater weight we give to these faulty judgments, the more we act in them, 
the more our thinking, feeling, and behavior can become distorted. That's why the classic representation of cognitive behavioral therapy is the triangle, with the three interconnected points of thoughts, emotions, and actions representing the three areas of intervention, as they each influence the other. Our thoughts affect our emotions and behaviors. Our emotions impact our behaviors and thinking, and our behaviors influence our emotions and thoughts. So the more distorted our thinking, the more our actions and even emotions can start working against us as well, become more dysfunctional. Becoming more skeptical of our judgments, not the impressions that led to them, but relating to our judgments in a different way is effective at improving our mental well-being. Because if distorted thoughts are affecting my mood, like making me feel more anxiety, and my distorted thoughts are affecting my behavior, like engaging in counterproductive sleep habits, then my whole life can be impacted. So addressing maladaptive or distorted thoughts is an effective way to improve insomnia, and is commonly addressed in the management of insomnia, in CBTI, when the system of cognitive and behavioral therapy is applied specifically to sleep, CBTI or Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. So in the early 90s, one of sleep's all-stars, Professor Charles Morin and his team, developed what is known as the Dysfunctional Beliefs and Attitudes About Sleep Scale. One of his first peer-reviewed papers about the DBAS, the Dysfunctional Beliefs and Attitudes About Sleep, was first published in the journal Psychology and Aging back in 1993. We'll take a look at these beliefs in just a moment, but like other cognitive distortions, these dysfunctional thought patterns fell into a few key categories of limiting beliefs. First, thoughts of the inevitable and helplessness. Second, rigid and inflexible thinking. And third, over-attributing to sleep. So just like fortune-telling, assuming you know what's going to happen, including what you will or will not be able to do to stop it, predicting the future of your upcoming sleep and how it will go well before it happens. Secondly, because of strong assumptions, having no flexibility or ability to adapt or even imagine anything different whether different from a set of rules or different from the catastrophe you've imagined that your sleep has to be. And thirdly, rather than recognizing the complexity of life and that many factors, especially your sleep, will influence your day-to-day experience instead of assume that your sleep dictates your experience and that everything bad is caused by bad sleep and the only reason things aren't worse is because sleep wasn't as bad last night. As we go through these 28 beliefs, See if you can spot which of these categories each belief falls into. Helplessness, inflexible thinking, and over-attribution to sleep. And also, see if any of these statements sound familiar to you. Number one, I need eight hours of sleep to feel refreshed and function well during the day. Number two, when I don't get the proper amount of sleep on a given night, I need to catch up the next day by napping or the next night by sleeping longer. Number three, Because I'm getting older, I need less sleep. Number four, I'm worried that if I go one or two nights without sleep, I may have a nervous breakdown. Number five, I'm concerned that chronic insomnia may have serious consequences on my physical health. Number six, by spending more time in bed, I usually get more sleep and feel better the next day. Number seven, when I have trouble falling asleep or getting back to sleep after a nighttime awakening, I should stay in bed and try harder. Number eight, I'm worried that I may lose control over my abilities to sleep. Number nine, because I'm getting older, I should go to bed earlier in the evening. Number 10, after a poor night's sleep, I know it will interfere with my activities the next day. Number 11, to be alert and function well during the day, 
I believe I would be better off taking a sleeping pill rather than having a poor night's sleep. Number 12. When I feel irritable, depressed, or anxious during the day, it is mostly because I did not sleep well the night before. Number 13. Because my bed partner falls asleep as soon as his or her head hits the pillow and stays asleep through the night, I should be able to do so too. Number 14. I feel insomnia is basically the result of aging, and there isn't much that can be done about the problem. Number 15. I'm sometimes afraid of dying in my sleep. Number 16. When I have a good night's sleep, I know that I'll pay for it the next night. Number 17. When I sleep poorly one night, I know it will disturb my sleep schedule for the whole week. Number 18. Without an adequate night's sleep, I can hardly function the next day. Number 19. I can't ever predict whether I'll have a good or poor night's sleep. Number 20. I have little ability to manage the negative consequences of disturbed sleep. Number 21. When I feel tired, have no energy, or just seem not to function well during the day, it is generally because I did not sleep well the night before. Number 22. I get overwhelmed by my thoughts at night and often feel like I have no control over this race in mind. Number 23. I can still lead a satisfactory life despite sleep difficulties. Number 24. I believe insomnia is essentially the result of a chemical imbalance. Number 25. I feel insomnia is ruining my ability to enjoy life and prevents me from doing what I want. Number 26. My sleep is getting worse all the time and I don't believe anyone can help. Number 27. A nightcap before bedtime is a good solution to my sleep problems. And number 28. Medication is probably the only solution to sleeplessness. So some of these myths you may have heard before. For instance, number one may be the most common. I have to get eight hours of sleep. Or number three, as I age, I need less sleep. We've tackled this a few times before, and it's not quite that it's dead wrong, but a distortion of something true. When we look at large groups of people and see who is thriving and who is struggling, there is a clear association with sleep, including sleep duration. We can also experimentally manipulate the sleep duration of a smaller number of individuals and then assess the impact on performance like thinking, memory, emotions, or physiological effects like blood pressure, sugar, stress response, etc. And the evidence is clear that there is a range of sleep duration where people thrive, or at least normal, and outside that range we see undeniable strain on well-being all the way to risk of death. And while there are always and rare exceptions, that range is typically 7-9 to hours of sleep opportunity or sometimes put another way, 6-8 to hours of actual true sleep time. So while it's true that 8 hours is smack dab in the middle of that range, it's not a rigid have-to rule. There are plenty of people who operate fine on 6 hours of sleep, after being in bed for 6.5 or 7 hours, without any measurable deficits. Each person's sleep need is unique, and that need also depends on recent sleep. If I normally need 7.5 hours of sleep, but have only been getting 6.5 hours over the last week, my sleep debt is building. And even my usual 7.5 hours is not going to give me the same bang for my buck as usual, so I may need some short-term recovery sleep stacked on top of my usual sleep need. So is 8 hours good? Certainly for many people, yes. Is 8 hours a strict requirement? That's a hard no. And while it's true we see sleep need in general change over adult life, it's not by much. The change in sleep need of a 10-year-old versus a 20-year-old is far more dramatic than the difference in sleep need from a 20-year-old compared to an 80-year-old. Going back to the list, you may have also picked up a lot of anxiety from some of the beliefs on the DBAS, the Dysfunctional Beliefs and Attitudes About Sleep List. For instance, number 28, 
The belief that medication may be the only solution is really an expression of anxiety about not being able to sleep on my own. If I don't have this external locus of control over my sleep, I'm worried I won't be able to sleep at all. Or numbers 19 and 20. Anxiety from the chaos, the uncertainty, the not knowing whether tonight will be a good night or a bad night, and then the worry about the consequences. Anxious I won't have the resources to withstand the effects of a bad night. Or most blatantly in number 8. Anxiety about losing control over sleep. We've discussed several times before that there's a two-way street here. Clearly, being aroused, stimulated, amped up with anxiety will make it hard to settle down, relax, and fall asleep. But if we start with poor sleep quality or quantity, it's even more likely that impaired sleep will trigger poor mood regulation like anxiety. You can see how easy it can be to get stuck in a vicious cycle here. But as we've talked about before, like last week, having an anxious thought doesn't mean we're doomed. Experiencing anxiety is normal. It's part of being human. Anxiety disorder is what happens when anxiety negatively impacts our ability to function as humans. But if we take the approach of addressing our anxiety head-on, writing it out, reading it as if coming from a third party, does that anxious thought serve you well? Is it helpful? Is there evidence to support that thought or evidence to refute it? How could that anxious thought be modified so that it was more helpful? Relating to our anxiety with shame is not likely to help us succeed. But approaching anxiety with open arms, with a sense of compassion, recognizing the pain and feeling motivated to alleviate it, embracing our anxious selves just as you would an anxious puppy, that different relationship with anxiety is much more likely to help us prosper. Another common theme you may detect in the list of dysfunctional beliefs relates to compensation, or more specifically, dysfunctional compensation. The motivation is valid, no doubt. If I haven't been sleeping well, I feel compelled to do something to make up for that. I am motivated to institute a fix of some sort. The dysfunction comes in the form of that compensation. So for example, number two, after a bad night, I should make up for that by spending a lot more time in bed overall, both with napping during the day and extending my time overnight. Or number six, if I spend more time in bed, I should be getting more sleep. Or number seven, if I can't fall asleep, I should just stay in bed and try harder. Or number nine, I should just get into bed earlier and earlier. These dysfunctional compensatory measures have in common changes to timing of bedtime and wake time. This is actually the main target of the B in CBTI, as discussed in episode 44. One of the main goals of the behavioral component of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is to improve sleep efficiency, the percentage of time actually sleeping, given the amount of time spent physically in the bed. And the best way to accomplish that improved use of the bed, improved efficiency to squeeze out more sleep for each moment in the bed, is to get rid of wake time in the bed. As discussed in episode 44, as well as episode 16, we do this by limiting, not by adding to time spent in bed. And importantly, this needs to be anchored by a constant wake-up time. This is to ensure the stability of the circadian rhythm, your body's internal clock, that will let you know when it's ready for sleep. For example, if you need to get up by 6 a.m. for work or school, and you generally try to get in bed around 10 p.m., but find yourself spending a lot of time staring at the ceiling, tossing and turning, trying to fall asleep, as discussed in episode 27, and end up achieving only 6 hours of sleep total, your sleep efficiency is rather poor, with 6 hours per 8 hours in bed, or 75%. If instead, you still got up at 6 a.m., but gave yourself an opportunity better suited to your actual sleep time, say by going to bed at 11.30 instead of at 10, you just boosted your sleep efficiency from 75% all the way up to 92%. Now crunching 6 hours of solid sleep into a 6.5 hour window, rather than trying to apply the same duration to an outsized opportunity. 
And a key here is not sleep deprivation, not to get less sleep, but to get less wake in the bed. The functional compensation in CBTI is not to spend as much time as it takes in bed to eke out just a tiny bit more sleep, even if it takes all day, but rather to shrink that oversized time in bed to better fit your actual sleep time. And lastly, going back to the DBAS list, sleep and its importance is kind of my shtick. And sleep can impact every sense and measure of human well-being and suffering. But there's an important and sometimes overlooked distinction between an influence and an absolute dictate. Nowhere do we see that 100% of people, 100% of the time, with this one sleep issue have to, must, unavoidably, guaranteed to suffer in this way. That is ridiculous. But that is a common cognitive distortion. All or nothing thinking. If I have sleep trouble, then it is guaranteed. Future laid out for me. No way to avoid it. Absolutely going to happen that this precise bad thing is going to happen to me. From the list. Number four. If I don't sleep, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. Number 10, after one night of poor sleep, I know I'm going to function poorly the next day. Numbers 12 and 21, if I'm ever not killing it in the emotion and energy department, it must be that I didn't sleep perfectly last night. Number 17, I know that if I have just a single night of poor sleep, my sleep is absolutely ruined for the entire next week. And number 25, I know that because I have insomnia, my life is completely ruined and I can't do anything I want. Now, to see some of these statements written out or said by anyone else, Many of them seem absurd. It is quite ridiculous to attribute to oneself omniscience and omnipotence. Only I can see all, know all, and control all, or at least my sleep can. That is over-attribution. And yet, these attitudes and beliefs are very common among those suffering sleep difficulties. And these attitudes and distorted judgments can make it quite difficult to get better. If I've convinced myself that my sleep is so broken that it can never be fixed, and my life is irreparably ruined, and nothing can ever be done to fix that, why would I try anything different? Why would I try to change what I know is unchangeable? Some of these beliefs prevent individuals from even considering that any relief is possible. And that's heartbreaking. We know that the more of these dysfunctional beliefs that we hold, the more resistant insomnia is to any kind of treatment. And yet we also see that the triangle of cognitive behavioral therapy does work. The changes to behavior specifically the behaviors of when we get into and out of the bed to start and end our sleep periods, that behavior alone has been shown to improve many of these dysfunctional beliefs and attitudes about sleep. Improving sleep behavior leads to improvements in thoughts about sleep. All is certainly not lost. In fact, a new study just published at the end of November in the journal Sleep Health adds to this story. In the study, over 1,100 adults were asked whether they agreed or not with each of 20 different common sleep myths. The researchers also collected information about demographic factors, sleep knowledge, and sleep behaviors. Somewhat surprisingly, 10 of the 20 myths were endorsed by at least half of the participants. Some of these myths, again, these are not true statements about sleep, the majority of respondents believed half of them. But interestingly, the sleep health of the respondents was directly correlated with their likelihood of buying into the myths about sleep. The worse the sleeper, the stronger the belief in myths. Conversely, the better the sleeper, the less likely one was to believe a myth about sleep. It's as if getting better sleep proves to oneself that these notions are just myths. The big factors, sleep behaviors that made a difference in whether someone was likely to believe something untrue about their sleep, should come as no surprise. The more consistent someone was with sleep and wake times, meaning the more consistent their circadian rhythm, the less likely they were to hold false beliefs about sleep. The less these adults napped in the daytime, 
the less likely they were to hold false beliefs. Again, not because napping is evil, but because daytime napping usually reflects a deficit in quantity or quality or both of nighttime sleep, a compensation for poor sleep. Next, the more that somebody used their bed for just sleep and intimacy only, the less likely they were to believe myths about sleep. Next, the better someone's sleep hygiene, like exercise and light management and avoiding substances like caffeine and alcohol at inopportune times, the less likely they were to believe falsehoods about their sleep. And lastly, those with normal sleep durations were less likely to believe myths about sleep than those who were more sleep-deprived. So to summarize, having a bad night of sleep can be troubling. Making a lifestyle of bad sleep leads you down a dark path. Practice makes perfect, and the more we practice poor sleep, the more readily it appears next time. And the more frequent and reinforced a behavior is, a behavior like poor sleep, the more that that behavior will influence the quality of our thinking and our mood. Poor sleep increases the likelihood of anxiety, and the likelihood of holding on to judgments about sleep that are not just untrue, but quite dysfunctional. And the more dysfunctional beliefs and attitudes we hold, the worse our sleep is likely to stay. These dysfunctional beliefs and attitudes about sleep, first described by Charles Morin nearly 30 years ago, generally fall into three categories. First, beliefs about helplessness and inevitability. Second, beliefs and attitudes characterized by a rigid and inflexible thinking, like have to, must, always, and absolute. And third, beliefs that over-attribute powers to sleep, combining rigid thoughts about disaster unfolding from problematic sleep and that one is helpless to affect them. It can feel terrible holding some of these beliefs. It must be awful having the thought that your life is ruined and unsalvageable. It must be terrible losing all sense of an internal locus of control and feeling like control of your own life is out of your grasp. From the outside, some of these statements may sound absurd or ridiculous, but individuals holding onto these beliefs are suffering, make no mistake, and that's terrible. Thankfully, there are solutions. Evidence shows that improving sleep behaviors, namely by bumping up that sleep efficiency, improving the percentage of time spent asleep per time spent in bed, that change in behavior has been shown to decrease these dysfunctional beliefs and attitudes about sleep. And as this study just a couple weeks ago showed, that other sleep behaviors, including maintaining consistent wake-up times to reinforce one's circadian rhythm, avoiding daytime napping, maintaining the sanctity of the bed for sleep and intimacy, following simple sleep hygiene recommendations about timing, activity, and substances, and aiming for consistent normal sleep duration all help to reduce these dysfunctional beliefs and attitudes about sleep. If you haven't already, go check out wellrestedmd.com slash day. We can get a special download, a totally free cheat sheet. In this day of the life of the well-rested download, you'll find examples and timing of several morning and evening routines, the evidence-based best practices for wakeful days and restful nights. So head over to wellrestedmd.com slash day to see these best practices in action. Be sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to get all the latest episodes, leave a review, and head over to wellrestedmd.com for more information including the option to sign up for email updates. Thanks for listening.